Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hello, podcast friends. Another banger for you today. Today's guest is a buddy of mine, a partner at Clock Tower Technology Ventures, an LA-based VC firm focused on fintech. In today's episode, we're diving into VC and innovation in the financial services industry. Our guest has had an interesting path and having spent some time at Bridgewater along the way, we start out with a little bit of time, high-level thoughts about investing, allocation, risk parity strategies. We get into the heart of what Clock Tower Technology Ventures is all about. We talk about the small allocation of VC dollars financial services industry has received relative to tech and life sciences. And then we get the lowdown on why this pocket of the startup world is so compelling. We get into the rundown on a couple of their portfolio investments and what makes them so exciting going forward. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Clock Tower Technology Ventures, Ben Savage. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. This is a little weird. You're probably walking slash running distance from each other. Normally, we used to do like a quarterly brainstorm download at Jelena, which I miss. Is Jelena open right now? Do you know? I believe that with everything in LA, you can't sit down inside the store. And I think they're running all the takeaway through GTA and Justa, but I don't know for sure. For the non-Angelinos out there, this is one of my favorite restaurants on the planet. Most like quintessential LA restaurant. It's so great. The one positive of the coronavirus situation, at least down where I am, is the proliferation of outdoor seating, which I really hope stays after all this settles down and they just keep it all because LA, despite how nice it is, never had that much outdoor seating. Was that the last time I saw you or was it? I think it must have been. Yeah, it's possible we ran into each other somewhere on the West Side. You guys had your office opening when you were popping bottles of champagne and hanging out with Peter Thiel and everything else. But that was like over a year ago. Yeah, that's right. You guys have a great listeners. They have a great 
I used to be calling it somewhat of a fintech co-working space, but probably not so much co-working going on right now. Yeah, we're not sure what's going to happen with that whole space that we have and with that industry generally. Maybe we'll turn it into open air seating for restaurants or something. The whole world's going to have to do something with this stock of office space that's going to get unused for the next decade. We're debating what to do with ours. So, all right, well, this is going to be fun today. We'll probably brainstorm lots of my terrible ideas. I'll pitch you. Usually you're the nice filter on getting to tell me why they're horrific, and they usually are. But for the listeners who don't know you, let's do the quick one-minute background. You've been all over the place, grew up, I think, in the South, been out here for a while, stops in Palo Alto and Connecticut on the way. Give us like the one-minute summary. Sure. So I started my career at the apex of the dot-com bubble, graduated from college in 1999 and went and joined an investment bank, but in their venture capital practice. And so decided to become a VC at like the all-time highs in August 1999. Spent six years, three in New York, three in California, running around chasing venture capital. Which would have been first, New York or California? Three years in New York first, 99.02 in New York. And I got off a plane in San Francisco in August of 2002 and was like the only net migrant into the Bay Area that year, I think. I would have been the same exact time from the East Coast. I think I got there in 01. And the only positive thing about being there during that decimation was you could buy anything off Craigslist for like $5. Every flame out internet company, if you wanted 100 Herman Miller chairs, you could go just pick them up for free. But that was about it. Yeah. And it's so funny to think about San Francisco circa 2002 relative to San Francisco today. I mean, the most expensive tech company venture capital office space in San Francisco now is like this area around South Park. And it was just like a bombed out, desolate place. You probably could have bought the actual land around South Park for not that much money then. And it's really incredible how much that first bubble you never would have imagined it would be so much bigger than it than it is than it has become. So spent three years running around the Bay Area before deciding, hey, if I'm gonna go be a venture capitalist, I should go learn the secret handshake in that industry, which at the time maybe was a business school degree from Stanford. So that's where I went after that. And got to Stanford and just decided to switch gears a little bit, looked at market investing, did that in business school and then joined a big hedge fund on the East Coast on the back end of that. Spent two years there before kind of getting an entrepreneurial bug in financial services and started a fintech company in 2010, which was pretty early to be starting fintech companies, actually. Did that for a few years and then moved out to Los Angeles for personal reasons and hooked up with my partner today, a guy named Steve Drobny, and started building Clocktower Group, which has been a great ride. And we launched our venture practice in 2015. So I had this unusual career hole where I from 2005 to 2015, I stopped doing venture capital and did school, public markets, and some entrepreneurship, and then came back to being a VC after 10 years away from it, which is an interesting way to get perspective on something I've discovered. Try to recommend it for everyone in all careers, but as an investor, it actually turns out to be pretty handy. Well, there's going to be a lot of threads we're going to pull on today, and one of those will be some increased intersection of some of the things you're talking about. I was smiling, as you mentioned, a little hedge fund on the East Coast, because they were in the news today. Bridgewater was making some announcements about their fiddling around with their risk parity a little bit. It's a short article, but they were moving out of 
traditional bonds more into, I think, tips and gold. Like I scanned the article, but anyway, they're always in the news. So <laughs> for better or worse, and I'm sure your NDA will expire in about 2156. So we'll, we'll skip over that. We can skip over that, but risk parity we can talk about if you want. I mean, it's the right answer. So we can certainly talk about that. Oh, wait, I remember this is our first discussion when we met many, many years ago, pre you guys joining forces with Drobny, who we have a lot of common threads with. Our very first book, listeners, we had the same publicist for Steve's book, which was Inside the House of Money. I think that was the first great book, a classic macro book and his follow on too. Anyway, we had the same publicist and he used to work down the street from us, but now you guys move up into the north. Anyway, so risk parity, give us, give us the overview. It's philosophy, I think, for investing that certainly makes a lot of sense. Give us your thoughts on it. The deep insight of risk parity is that what you really want to be exposed to is not stocks and bonds and commodities, but some underlying set of core drivers of investment results. And you can imagine lots of different ways of getting at risk parity based on lots of conclusions about what those core drivers, the core fundamental reasons that there are long-term returns to be captured from investing, which is to say the core drivers of risk premiums. What you really want to do is build a long-term asset allocation portfolio where you are essentially harvesting those risk premiums in a thoughtfully constructed portfolio over time. And I think I'm sort of a believer that there is like a right and a wrong way to do investing, right? Which is, I think, sort of a controversial point of view. There's lots of different ways you can make money in markets. And many of those are, in fact, right ways to do it. But they're, I think, at a very, very high level, they're sort of like a right way and a wrong way to do it. And there are constraints that go into what's the right way to do it for everyone. And those constraints will lead to Meb having a different end portfolio than Ben. But the underlying principles of how we're going to do that, I think there's just a right way and a wrong way to do it. And they're fairly straightforward. And I'm hugely indebted to Bridgewater for helping me think about that. And they're very public about what they think the right way is. And they're largely right uh, about that. One of the interesting takeaways I always thought from their work on risk parity was this concept of not having to accept assets at the prepackaged volatility and leverage levels that you get from just nominal or notional exposure. If you have stocks, they already have debt on the balance sheet. Same thing with real estate. You could delever, lever them up. Same thing with bonds. Then it becomes more about correlations and all sorts of other regime sort of dependent returns, which I think is other types of investors have used that inside a methodology like the commodity trading advisors, I think of the 70s and 80s, started to think about that in a different way. They were more actively trading, but similar mindset. But an early way to access a, the idea of like a momentum risk factor, right? And I think that's one of the insights though, is that once you like see it, once you understand that's hard to unsee. That's right. Now, but like you mentioned, they totally implement it in all sorts of different ways across the board with all the different philosophies. You mentioned some right ways and wrong ways to invest. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because <laughs> I want to hear what they are. I think what you've written about many times in the past on asset allocation is among the right ways to do it too. Some very high level investors should think about what is their risk tolerance? How much risk do they want to take? And what does the distribution of that risk look like? Investors should be thinking about what their liabilities are. Where are you going to spend money? At what points in your life are you going to spend money? How are you going to spend money? What are you going to spend money on? 
what are their assets today? Like, what is it that is your source of income, the industry that you're involved in, places you live, the things you own that are assets as well as consumptive goods? And there's sort of a calculus that falls out of that, that dictates a little bit of like what your investment stance should be, what kinds of things you should be investing in. And what I've just said sounds a little bit motherhood and apple pie, but there's within that a lot of nuance and sort of how to do it correctly. And I would say one thing that investors often overfocus on is not the thing I just described of figuring out what your goals are, but people tend to jump right into, wait, what should I own? What's my portfolio? What's the best portfolio for me? Instead of doing the harder work up front, actually, of saying, well, wait, the best portfolio for you is clearly an answer to a question, or it's a second thing to get at. It's not the first thing, which is, well, what are your goals? If you know what the goals are, if you know what the liabilities are, and you know what you're trying to achieve, it's actually, I think, in some ways, not quite as complicated to put together what the optimal solution is and how you construct a portfolio. And I think it is actually a blend of passive structures and active structures. And I generally do think within the passive structures piece of it anyway, some form of risk parity is almost certainly the right way to do it, that there is a set of risk premia in the world that on a passive basis can be captured through long-only index type exposure to assets. And rather than looking at the sort of naive native form that you can buy assets in, it's actually almost like a fintech problem, if you will. If you can look through the equity markets and say, you know what? The US equity market is actually really different than the European equity market. And there's a different set of underlying risk factors I'm getting exposed to. If I were to put 100 bucks long the S&P versus 100 bucks long the FTSE or whatever it is, the UK index, but I want to really build diversification, not between the European stock market and the US stock market, but between the underlying factors, whatever you believe those to be. Maybe it's value and growth and momentum, or maybe it's inflation and economic growth, or maybe it's monetary policy and fiscal policy, or who knows, whatever it is. That part, I think there's reasonable people can kind of disagree about what you believe those underlying factors are in the world. But the principle of saying, I'm going to build a diversified portfolio on some underlying set of drivers rather than, as you point out, this kind of, hey, things happen to exist as packaged sort of stocks and bonds, which is this somewhat arbitrary set of conventions based on the way we've set up the securities rules around the world is much less good than if you can drill through it and kind of know what the data would tell you about the underlying true sources of economic risk in markets. Yeah, you know, it's funny, risk parity, we've always had a long interest in it. And there's a risk parity ETF came out recently that I think it's, it's a shop up near you, old school financial planner. They raised almost a billion so far. Advanced Research Investment Systems, RPAR, R-P-A-R, anyway. There's a lot of mutual funds, a lot of the big institutions. It'll be interesting to see how they all navigate. One of the simple takeaways, usually often though, at least historically, the criticisms, and feel free to comment on your thoughts there, was that you end up with a lot more in bonds. And if that ends up being an inflationary environment, people are always pulling their hair out about that concept with risk parity. Any general thoughts? Is that something not to worry about? I think the reason people in theory find a sort of levered bond portfolio unattractive, I think, is Number one, there's sort of this sense that like bonds don't have the same return profile as equities. And so why would I want to own this thing that doesn't have it? Well, to some extent, you solve that with leverage. And you can also obviously move duration around. I mean, literally, I think as of last week, the single best performing asset class this year is actually unlevered 30s, more so than like equity markets. 
Hey, you want to get weird and pull up the zero coupon bonds. That's what people like. You want to see bonds look like stocks. <laughs> yeah. And so that's, I think, one theoretical reason. And then the other is, look, in sort of an interest rate spike kind of environment, bonds get hurt. I think there's a misconception that somehow the long-term returns of holding a portfolio of, say, like bond futures or rolling a portfolio of concentration, a bond portfolio, would have like really negative long-term results if you're rolling it into a steepening yield curve. And that's just not really true. And there's lots of evidence from history of this. And that is because of the risk premium that we were talking about. If there is, in fact, a risk premium in holding duration, which I think very clearly there is, an index of that stuff will make money even if over a 20-year time scale, you expect rising yields in real terms. And so I think people just sort of get it wrong that for some reason they don't want to hold the bonds and as a result, lose out on a lot of the diversification power of bonds. And clearly, again, if you sort of zoom it back to a risk parity construct, there is a correlation benefit that you get from holding bonds. There's no question of that. If you can neutralize the return penalty from holding bonds by levering them up, things are going to work out just fine for you. And I think if you were to go and look back, and I don't really spend much of my time on this anymore because now I really just do the venture stuff for us. But there have been over the past decade, a lot of critiques of risk parity as a construct. Like GMO has famously been a hard critic of this. I think risk parity has held up quite well. And that this sort of anxiety about bonds not delivering on the return side of the equation and exposing you to some kind of horrific adverse shock event at least for the past decade, has largely proven totally false. And I suspect if we were to look back at this question 30 years from now, risk parity will have outperformed traditional diversified asset class portfolios. It may not have outperformed 100% equities, but 100% equities have their own issues, which is really about volatility and and risk. I suspect a risk parity portfolio levered to whatever the forward volatility will be of equities over the next 30 years will almost certainly outperform that portfolio. I was smiling as I was just thinking, why would anyone want to invest in anything other than US stocks, S&P 500 over the past 10 years? But bonds is funny because at least possibility, I think we were to go back in our probably first happy hour or lunch we had and say, look, X amount of years later, you're going to live in a world where most of the sovereigns are actually negative yielding. I would have said, dude, bullshit. There's no chance of that. But so you at least got to consider the possibility that U.S. bonds trade negative at some point. Unlikely, whatever. But in a hard deflationary environment, it's at least possible. And I don't think really much else hedges as well as bonds do in that environment. So anyway, we could talk about macro for hours. It's funny. You say, why would anyone want to own anything other than stocks? Let's imagine that in 2010, to just pick an arbitrary time, and I'm not actually sure what the math on this is, but I'd said, okay, for the next decade, you get to put on one of two trades. You can either buy the S&P or you can buy boons levered to the same volatility as the S&P. I think the boon trade might win over that time period. If you actually levered the vol of boons to the same vol that boos have shown over that decade, I'm not sure, but it's probably not as big a gap as you might think, partially to your point, because no one would have predicted a decade ago that boon yields would end up at negative 50 bips or whatever they are in nominal terms. I think no one also would have predicted that Apple would be worth $2 trillion. So it's hard, but the value of bonds is systematically underappreciated, I think, by investors. 
And that in itself creates opportunity. I mean, you mentioned inflation protected bonds at the very beginning of our conversation. Those are a really good example of an asset class that is for sure underappreciated by investors broadly. And I would suspect has better risk reward characteristics than as an asset class than most other asset classes today as a result. Yeah, you're starting to see flows into those ETFs. A good example is thinking about the stocks and bonds, as we tell people back in March when stocks were taking a big puke, was that stocks and long-term bonds just in the US had the same returns for 40 years. And it's not even levering the bonds. It's just the fact that bonds had a great run. And my favorite example, mainly because Klarman's getting so much crap lately in the press, is that back in the early 90s, there was a period, we talk about valuation with stocks a lot. And we say, look, stocks are expensive now and people hate on the CAPE ratio. But I said, look, let's run a fun experiment that if you exited stocks whenever they were above average valuations historically and just sat in bonds, the article shows if you had exited stocks when they were expensive, you would have missed out like a thousand percentage points in stocks. But said so that's a good thing because if you sat in bonds, you'd be in the same exact place and you would have missed out on these huge bear markets. And so, again, a lot of people, they see it as no alternative, but in a world of you have all these other assets that tend to do well. Anyway, we could talk about this for a while, but let's talk about what you're doing now. How long ago was Clock Tower? Five years you joined? No, it's at least seven. Yeah, it's either seven years, eight years, something like that. It feels like 2030 already, but it's only nine months in, eight months in. I know. This is, this is the longest year ever. Sitting at home will do that. We were joking before the podcast started. A listener's been said he did almost 200,000 miles last year on an airplane. And this year, is it zero? I got one trip before pandemic. I went to Miami at the earliest part of March. And it was actually a very strange experience because the pandemic was just starting to like really penetrate America's consciousness. And because we actually have an office in China, and my partner actually originally grew up in Wuhan, although he's lived in Manhattan Beach for a long time now, we were paying attention to the virus. So I was flying to and from Miami with a mask on the whole time and was like the only person on the plane and getting weird looks from people. And you could actually walk into a drugstore and just buy masks back then. And I'd done that. And, and looking back, the virus was clearly in circulation and people had it in that first week of March in South Beach. But you didn't know. It just felt like a slightly odd time rather than almost like the end of civilization, which in some ways it was. My last trip was to an investing conference in Jackson Hole and came back sick as a dog. I'm still convinced I had it. Antibody test at the place I took it says I didn't have it. But then a week after, it was a naturopathic spot. <laughs> the week after I took the test, I got a marketing email from the naturopathic doctor that I had the antibody test marketing a cure is the wrong word, but a solution for killing coronavirus that involves water and electricity. And I don't know what that means, but <laughs> I'm a little worried about my results, but who knows? Okay. So you guys have been at it for almost a decade. Tell the listeners what Clock Tower is, what y'all's focus is, kind of what your mandate is, what's the progress? So Clock Tower Ventures is the financial innovation venture capital platform within Clock Tower Group. And at Clock Tower Ventures, what we do is in some ways very simple. We back entrepreneurs and innovators who we think can reinvent financial services in a way that's better for everyone. Uh, and we've been very fortunate over the five years to be a small part of the journeys of 80 companies, give or take, in fintech, some of which are super exciting and changing the world and 
some of which are on the way to changing the world and just haven't got there yet, but are still super interesting. Clock to our group, more broadly, we are essentially an asset management boutique with three platforms. The venture platform, we have a global macro investing platform where we allocate to and help launch hedge funds that trade global macro strategies. And then we have a similar platform to that in China, where we allocate to and invest in hedge funds that transact exclusively in onshore Chinese capital markets. And as I mentioned, we have a team of folks in in China that support that business. What's the macro focus? Is it discretionary, fundamental, quant, all the above? It's really all of the above. I think the way we would articulate the thing that Clock Tower Group does that's sort of differentiated is that first and foremost, we try to generate alpha through the power of relationships. We think that if you cultivate an ecosystem of partnerships between sort of the right people in the right places in the right ways, you build partnerships that actually matter. You can unlock insight, you can unlock ideas, you can unlock opportunities, you can unlock access all of which can be sort of harvested in the right way to generate durable, sustainable alpha outperformance in these markets relative to the approaches that other folks might take. And we anchor all of that with the idea of a top-down way of looking at the world, a macroeconomic perspective, and use that almost as a North Star to anchor who is in this ecosystem, this community of partners that we're pulling together for this kind of really fun, stimulating, interesting engagement about the world at large. So whether it's financial services, which you kind of can't be a macro person and not know financial services, or it's technology and China, which are probably the two really big generational macro themes of our lives, all those things tie together in just thinking top down about the world. And then we wrap around all of that, I think, a little bit more sophistication about human capital than perhaps many other investment managers do. Because while we're trying to wield the power of great relationships to generate alpha, we do that with actual people. And all of our businesses are things where we're ultimately investing in people. Seeding hedge funds, allocating to hedge funds, it's really about the human capital managing those entities as investors. And then venture capital, especially at the early stages, which is where we play, it's very much about picking the right teams. The ideas matter. The market that you're going into matters. The way you execute matters. But at the end of the day, companies are just people. And at the very early stages in particular, we would all day long back someone we think is remarkable, even if we don't particularly like their idea, than someone we think is mediocre while we're in love with their idea. And that's how we think about it. That applies to the macro and the VC business? Or is that you're specifically to one? Yeah. I mean, very much so in the VC business. The macro side, I had probably shouldn't speak for my partners who drive that business more than I do. And do you guys accept submissions? Is it purely relationship driven? How do you source the kind of funds you're you're looking for? The opportunities that we seed. Yeah, I mean, certainly we are open to introductions. I mean, you never know where the next great investment talent is going to come from. As a practical matter, I think because we are so relationship driven, we've kind of hit a scale point where we are connected to the global macro community. At this point, I think we have a sort of central stage role in that ecosystem around the world of the hedge fund folk and the investment folk and the academics and the policymakers and the analysts who think macro. But we're constantly meeting new people. And that's part of the fun of, I think, Clock Tower Group in aggregate. All of our businesses are really built around just 
constantly renewing your excitement and interest in the things you're focused on by just interacting with smart people who have interesting perspectives that maybe you haven't heard before. That's kind of the cool thing about all of our businesses, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, both of those areas, and I won't speak to China because I have much less experience, but macro and the startup are just endlessly fascinating about what's going on and for similar but slightly different reasons. One last macro question, then we'll hop over. What do you see as the general sentiment and mood surrounding macro community? And that can either be from the sort of institutional investor sort of interest sentiment. We've had this long romping U.S. bull market. And depending on what you mean when you say macro, that could be a big headwind or not. But any general thoughts on sort of the macro landscape? Macro is the classic original hedge fund strategy. And macro for a very long time was in assets by far the largest hedge fund strategy. And then really sometime around the late 90s, you had this moment where security selection and stock picking kind of outran macro as the thing in hedge funds. The global financial crisis looked for a moment like it was going to maybe reset that scoreboard. And macro had a sort of day in the sun around 2007, 8, 9. And then it's actually been, to your point, a pretty extended period where equity markets have been so strong, hedge funds in general have underperformed, and macro within that has not done super well. I think the version of the future that we're starting to look at, the post-pandemic future, I suspect sets itself up in a much better way for macro outperformance relative to other alpha strategies, given the surge in uncertainty not so much in volatility, although that too, but in uncertainty about the future and the prospect of a much wider set of outcomes around inflation, a much wider set of outcomes around interest rates, a much wider set of outcomes around currency prices and commodity prices. All of that is a really, I think, interesting setup for macro over the next decade to find some more time in the sun. And I think you're hearing that from allocators and seeing it in the performance of managers. There was a fun old tweet I had many years ago where you're talking about like the really old school guys. And you think of macro, I think of Soros, I think of Bacon, all these guys. And I said, there's like five family trees. And this isn't macro, but you'll see in a second. And I said, I wonder if you could trickle down all five of these, which one would have generated the most AUM progeny? There's the famous tiger cubs of Robertson. And that's mostly long, short equity, security selection. There's the Richard Dennis Turtles, which ended up being a lot of the macro trend followers. There was Commodities Corp, which put out a lot. Rubens, Goldman Sachs, sort of ARB desk. And lastly, was anything Soros related. And it's interesting because we're now on to like the grandkids and, and, and great grandkids from some of those. But a lot of these old school macro guys, super fun to see what a lot of them spawned over the years and many different styles within that bucket too. I think that Goldman risk arb desk though might be the most, might actually be the biggest just because of the quanta of firms that have sort of grown out of that lineage, although I'm not sure. I once tracked all the names in an Excel file and it got to be like dozens, but I'll post it to the show notes listeners if I can find it. All right, so let's talk fintech, which is usually the topic you and I are brainstorming about over the years over wine and beers and everything else. 
you guys have invested in a lot of companies. Give us sort of your mandate. What are you looking for? What have been the themes? FinTech, I think, can mean a lot of different things. What's the sort of, is it seed? Is it Series A? What's the size check? All that good stuff. Give us the overview and then we'll, we'll break it down. Yeah. And it's funny, I try not to use the word fintech actually, because to me, a better way to capture it is just financial services innovation. And that's really what we focus on. We cover the entirety of the financial services landscape. We categorize that into seven sectors, insurance, payments, banking, lending, and credit, kind of all as one, personal finance, capital markets and investment technology, all of which are kind of classic financial services things. Then we would add two other categories. One is real estate to the extent it's a financial asset rather than a physical extended asset. And then the last is what we call the enterprise financial stack, which is essentially anything that would run up to a CFO and a handful of other things attached to enterprises as financial entities, not just operating entities. You kind of add all that up. It's about 20% of GDP, 20% of market cap, roughly. And depending on how you think about the real estate, it could be bigger than that. That's a pretty big swath of reality that we're staring at ultimately. And part of what makes, I think, that really interesting and is sometimes missed by folks when they sort of hear fintech is just how much heterogeneity there is within that. It's an enormous part of our economy and our reality, what financial services drives. And the kind of simplest thesis that we had when we launched our business and continues to really be the thesis today is that if you look at the dollars that get pointed at innovation in our sort of financial system, like just take the venture capital dollars in any given year, and you sort of allocate those dollars against sectors of the economy or against market cap. I mean, there's a pretty good correlation between GDP share and market cap share. It gets distorted over time as we decide that one sector of the economy is more valued than another for like a decade or something. But long, long term, there probably should be some equilibrium across those things. What you can see is that the venture business historically has had two core focal points. It's tech, hard tech, semiconductor, software, what people would have called TMT, tech, media, telecom, and then life science, both of which are comparably sized slices of the economy and of market cap to financial services. Financial services has had a much, much smaller share of venture capital dollars pointed at it for really forever since the inception of the venture capital industry as a modern scaled up industry, which really occurred in kind of the 1990s. You can go back even further, but it's very hard to get the data. So if you imagine almost like an innovation quotient where you said, what are the dollars of venture capital relative to say the market cap of the tech sector or the dollars of venture capital relative to the market cap of life sciences, or the dollars of venture capital relative to the market cap of financials, or even better if you looked at it in GDP terms, because right now, if you looked at it in market cap terms, you get some funky answers. And you call this an innovation quotient of sorts. The innovation quotient for financial services when we started five years ago was almost a full order of magnitude smaller than the innovation quotient would have been in tech and life science. In other words, as a percentage of venture capital, the weighting that went into financial services was so much lower than the weighting that went into tech and healthcare. And we sort of looked at that and said, this doesn't make any first principles economic sense. There's no really obvious reason why the financial services industry, which is just as valuable as the life science industry, just as valuable as the tech industry over a very long period of time, is so much more resistant to innovation that you would see so many fewer dollars 
being pointed at it. And it just didn't make much sense. Now, then you sort of start digging into it and we can dig into it a little bit and talk about why that might've been. But we said, look, this feels wrong. This feels especially wrong in an environment where technology has gotten so much better that all of the traditional scale barriers to launching new businesses are falling very, very quickly through things like the cloud, which takes what otherwise in 2002 would have been an enormous amount of fixed cost to launch a business and turns them into variable costs. And that applies across all kinds of categories. You would expect to see more innovation happen in financial services over the next 20 or 30 years than we've seen over the last. And corresponding to that, you would expect to see an enormous flow of capital into financial services innovation over the next 20 or 30 years. And at some very simple level, if I told you, hey, a bunch of people are going to want to buy something over the next 20 or 30 years, a pretty good trade is to buy it before they do. In some sense, what I think is the story of fintech over the past five years is that you can just see a steady increase in the flow of capital pointed at financial services innovation over the last five years. There is still a relatively small supply of high quality companies in financial innovation. So the valuations increase. More people want to buy fintech than there are sellers of fintech at the moment, fintech companies. What is the general thesis? Because I agree with you and I'm spinning in my head because I'm like, okay, it's an industry with some of the largest profit margins, parts of fintech in the entire world of all the industries. It's a massively scalable industry sector. Is it just like the lack of sexiness historically versus tech and life science? What are some of the reasons behind why the dollars aren't there? Or is it simply because the tech and life sciences were the historical profit centers that generated a lot of the money that flowed through and just continued where it was from the origins of VC. Any of those? Check the box, multiple choice. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we have a bunch of different sort of arguments as to why historically there was less innovation in financial services that accreted to kind of new capital sources than in other verticals. But I think you can kind of boil it down to almost three naive, simplifying categories, one of which was scale. So financial services, I think, in many ways, continues to be a business where you want really big scale to generate really big profits. Functionally, what a community or regional bank does is not that dissimilar than what a very large money center bank might do in terms of servicing customers. But at every part of that journey, having more scale unlocks better margins. And so over a long period of time, the really big banks have been able to get bigger and bigger, partially through M&A, but partially just through essentially having more resources to throw at customer experiences. And so if you think about the mobile banking app that Citibank is going to build versus the mobile banking app that a sort of regional bank is capable of building, you're going to get a different experience. And that's going to matter over time. So the scale point at which financial services started to make sense used to be very, very high. And I think for a variety of reasons, that scale point has come down radically over the past five years. It was already lower five years ago as a function of developments in the tech world. And the fintech world has carried that ball much, much further over the past five years where like you and I could start a company today and within five weeks, we could probably accept deposits for like the Faber Savage bank card product. Killer name. Great name, actually. Savage Faber may be better, but either way, that's a... Yeah, yeah, sure. Savage Bank is... I've already trademarked it. Like, 
that product, I could launch it in five weeks, leveraging other people's infrastructure now. I would have a slightly lower margin relying on all these people to launch that card than I would if I like went out and registered a bank and got chartered, which is, by the way, borderline impossible now, and built all the infrastructure myself and so forth. But that would A, take a lot of time and a lot of capital. That's what you would have had to do 10 years ago if you wanted to take deposits. Today, it's five weeks and it's not even that much money to launch this kind of thing. That's an enormous change in the competitive landscape. So a tremendous number of barriers to entry essentially decayed when things go to the cloud, when we are able to virtualize more and more of the margin structure and sort of operating stack of financial services. In many ways, frankly, it's very similar to what happened with semiconductors, where you went from intensely vertically integrated development of silicon. You had to own foundries yourself. You had to have that entire value chain to get chips built to today, where a designer by himself on a laptop can like design silicon and actually end up with physical chips without that much, stretching it a little bit. But they outsource the entirety of that value chain over a long period of time. And that's functionally what we saw occurring with, with financial services. The second big driver is regulation, where post-global financial crisis, the actual costs of regulation went up for all the incumbents. And because they had sort of legacy issues and because they had such a big footprint, it counterintuitively opened the door to more innovation in financial services. And actually, in most jurisdictions outside the United States, regulation in aggregate went way down. We were one of the few countries that the response to the GFC was, oh my God, we need more regulation. Most places went the other way and said, wow, we need more innovation. We need less regulation so that we can have a more flexible and nimble banking system. And on the back end of the global financial crisis in particular, I think there were enough shifts in the regulatory regimes that became sort of clearer for people to see ways to start competing because you're not burdened by, say, like SIFI rules and some of the bank rules. And there also appeared what I think at the time was basically a short regulatory arbitrage window where a lot of the early fintech companies were able to be lenders because the banks just evacuated being lenders because they were so tied up with dealing with regulation and balance sheet rules. So for instance, Lending Club and Prosper, which are kind of the standard bearers of that early wave of fintech, nobody would have tried to build that kind of business pre-global financial crisis because you would have said, well, how are you going to compete with the banks? They already make these loans. The banks just don't make those loans anymore. They stopped making them because of the regulatory issues. And then finally, the third thing we think about is trust. Financial services at the root are a trust transaction. If I invest my money in one of your ETFs, Meb, I'm trusting you in some way to be a good steward of my capital. If I choose to deposit my money in Faber Savage Bank Corp, I would be trusting that entity to be a good steward of my money to deliver me a good experience. It's very easy to forget, but you and I are both old enough to remember when like, it was a little nerve-wracking to plug your credit card into some website to buy books online. Today, no one would even think twice about that. We just trust that that's going to work. And younger people in particular have a staggering amount of trust with companies and startups that they've never heard of in 30 minutes and just a handful of clicks. They might wire 80% of their life savings into some account to buy a cryptocurrency that they've never heard of before. This is a real change in consumer behavior. And you would never have seen this, I believe, around financial services if it weren't for actually two trust decaying events which were the dot-com crisis first and the global financial crisis second, where Wall Street totally failed everybody. 
they completely destroyed what were really at that point almost 100-year sort of stores of trust that had been built up in some of these brand names. The brand names still carry some weight, like the JP Morgans and Chases and Citibanks of the world actually still have way more brand equity than I think a lot of fintech VCs would like to admit. But the willingness to trust totally new entrants in financial services, kind of a new thing over the past decade. And I think we felt that that was coming. And that was another of the barriers to entry that just decayed and continues to decay, which leads to this surge of innovation in financial service. Wells Fargo may be the final straw in the legacy banks. It's interesting because listeners of the podcast have kind of got to ride along as I've talked about private startup investing over the last five, six years. And there's like five themes that I look at, and none of them are specifically fintech. But the one category that is by far the biggest, which ends up being fintech and real estate and some of the financial services you're talking about, is almost like this concept of what I call frustration arbitrage, where you have these old calcified industries that just still like often are such a antiquated, terrible user experience. And everyone almost like agrees on it. Usually there's like, this is terrible. I don't know why it's still this way, but nothing is quite bubbled up or evolved. But over the past decade, and even now you're seeing so many innovative, it's almost like it's just like Cambrian explosion of opportunities and ideas, hopefully (laughs) that will get rid of, because some of these have such like low NPS scores on the, just the interaction is so miserable. Anyway, tell us about a few of the themes that you guys are looking at, any of the sort of sub trees, branches of the tree under financial services you think are particularly interesting. You guys have invested in how many? 50, 100 companies at this point? 80 companies, give or take, across our platform. And the average stage is what? Seed, Series A, B, where? It's seed A and B. I mean, generally what we would say is anything that's call it less than 200 million of enterprise value, we're going to take a look at I'll dive into some things, but I just want to pick up on one of the things you mentioned there, Meb, that there has been, it seems like, especially from a consumer's perspective, this explosion, a flowering of innovative technologies, innovative experiences and industries that sort of feel stodgy. But one of the things I sometimes wonder about for the stuff that's outside of financial services, but also even within financial services is like, is all this actually kind of high return investments from society's perspective? is it actually the best use of resources? And the example I sometimes talk about is train travel, like Amtrak. It's an interesting thing to me. We've all gotten so accustomed to the incredibly high quality experiences that say Amazon and Apple deliver to us. Amazon in particular has pushed the consumer UX to just such an extreme degree that you literally can talk to a box in your kitchen and the next day like toilet paper shows up at your front door. But you sort of go, wait, do we need that type of experience in everything we're doing in our lives? And I sometimes think about, say, Amtrak, this quasi-governmental railroad. It's literally a monopoly. There is no competition. You cannot get on a passenger train effectively anywhere else in the country outside of Amtrak. And so you sort of go, what's a better use of Amtrak's capital? Are they better off actually just making the trains themselves more comfortable and more useful? Or should there be like an Amtrak mobile app on my phone that's got a beautiful user experience so I can like buy tickets and do whatever I need to do on my phone? And I sometimes think, you know, maybe they should just put the money in the trains as opposed to building the cool app so that I can like buy my Amtrak ticket with Bitcoin or whatever they're going to get to down the line. They're not literally there yet. But 
this idea that every business we interact with, every experience we have has to start approximating this like really high quality customer service expectation that we've now rendered as consumers from the Amazons and things like that sometimes doesn't make sense to me. And we actually see this in financial services that insurance, which is a great example, historically has not had such a good financial services experience. And you mentioned net promoter scores and insurance are generally pretty bad. Dealing with claims and engaging with insurance companies, not that awesome. But claims to me is an interesting use case of how often do you really have an insurance claim? When you have those claims, is it really the end of the world if you have to go to your desktop versus doing it on your phone? Is it really worth it for insurance companies to spend a bunch of money to create a mobile phone claims experience as opposed to doing it with phone calls or going on a desktop? They've all done it. So they've all made some competitive assessment that it is important to do that. But relative to other places that could potentially be more productive uses of capital for some of these companies, I wonder about these investments. And in particular, I wonder if we get a truly deep recession at any point. Does some massive amount of spending on technology that lots and lots of companies have made on enterprise SaaS, for instance, just get unwound very quickly? As somebody around the board of the directors looks at their chemical manufacturing business and says, why are we spending this much money on a CRM software? It feels crazy. And there cannot possibly be a high enough return on investment for this CRM package just because we think our customers need to have an Amazon-like experience with us. For crying out loud, we make chemicals. And There's a part of me that thinks that shoe might drop over the next five years, which would have some pretty real consequences on how we think about a lot of businesses. In fintech, in financial services, I actually think it largely goes the other way because there's such a gap around financial services experiences, and it is so central to our lives. It's generally the kind of thing that we engage with every day, whether we realize it or not, that I don't think it will occur in financial services, but I I think it might very much play that way in, in other verticals. So I just want to touch on that before diving in. But you asked some of the themes that we think are interesting. At some level, there's interesting things happening across all seven of the verticals that we care about. I would say at a really high level, a couple of the ideas that are more horizontal that I think are intriguing, one of which is the broadening of credit and the availability and access of credit somewhat universally is something that I think becomes really interesting over time. Historically, if you wanted to borrow money for anything, there was some central place that lent you money. It could have been a bank and you went there and got some kind of term loan, whether that term loan was a mortgage or a business loan or in the old days, kind of a personal loan. Most people got credit through a credit card, which was of course issued by a bank and provided them some form of credit to buy things on a day in, day out basis. Credit cards really are more of a convenience type of credit than they are like durable credit in the sense of an extension of your purchasing power. But that's like the big picture. Fast forward to today, and credit has been federated and distributed everywhere. You can get credit at the point of sale in almost any industry, whether it's physically at a point of sale, like you can walk into most jewelry stores and they'll lend you on the spot, or it's online through the buy now, pay later stuff that is, of course, trading at totally crazy valuation multiples. You can get credit in almost any outlet, anywhere, anytime. It's like everyone is a lender at this point in time. And what's sort of interesting on the flip side of that is like everyone is a source of capital to these lenders, interestingly enough. There's been so much of an appetite to capture all of these types of credit, partially because for our conversation earlier, 
sovereign duration and corporate duration, the yields have come down so much that access to point of sale credit, what are generally higher risk credits are just much more appealing. So there's this huge surge of capital seeking places to find yield. So credit proliferates very, very broadly, but also technology just facilitates credit in lots and lots of places for more and more people all over the world. This is generally speaking a good thing. We want people to be able to borrow. It changes their purchasing power, changes their livelihood, facilitates more efficiency in the economy. Like if you think about a production possibilities curve and to some extent saving and borrowing is about time variation of preference, which leads to good outcomes for society. You want to see this sort of thing occur. But it really changes the texture of transacting for consumers and businesses when credit is federated everywhere. And it removes a great deal of friction from the economy. If I wanted to go buy a tractor for my small business 10 years ago, I probably didn't have that cash lying around. I would have had to figure out how to borrow money from it. Maybe if it was a captive tractor dealership, like John Deere had some captive financing company and could lend me money, but maybe I had to go to like my local bank that understood my farm, borrow the money to go buy that tractor. It was just sort of complicated. Is this a good thing? I'm walking towards the conclusion because then one half I'm like, all right, it's definitely good for the economy. Everything is lubricated more. Is it a net benefit to the consumer and businesses, or is it just result in them levering up and buying a bunch of junk they don't need? I personally think it's very clearly a net benefit, but you can just take the case of consumers, right? Until you have the development of standardized credit metrics like FICO scores in the sort of 50s, 60s, 70s, it was fairly difficult for individual people to get credit. And all kinds of like externalities ranging from redlining and all the horrible outcomes that occurred with this more centralized control of credit in home buying and consumer purchasing led to actually less freedom and flexibility for people. And it led to just less efficient marketplaces in general. It seems to me that it's almost certainly better to have more credit out there. But at the same time, sure, you give people weapons, they're occasionally going to shoot themselves. And so it's totally possible that consumers and businesses will choose to lever up and up and up with more and more credit. And then you're confronted with sort of the broad over leverage problem that a lot of economies continue to face and that arguably triggered the global financial crisis. That probably gets solved in other ways, notably inflation. I think we'll end up solving some sort of structural over leverage problem. But people are also more responsible than I think that we're inclined to believe and that most people aren't really going to get themselves wrong-footed with leverage. And actually, when you look at the behavior of younger consumers in particular, on the consumer side anyway, you really don't see. But we're very fortunate, actually, in the West, where we have like really good bankruptcy laws and things like that that help solve and clear these problems out of the system. Countries like Japan, countries in the Middle East, where they haven't had these kinds of solutions because they haven't wanted to face the pain of, at least on the corporate side, like real bankruptcies and workouts tend to have less dynamic, slower moving, slower growth economies in the end. Capitalism is very much about birth and death of companies. In order for there to be an invisible hand that really works, you can't have the same 500 companies in the S&P every year. It has to turn over. Some of those companies have to lose over time. So you want more opportunity for credit and things. But I think it's an interesting mega trend in the sense that financial services ultimately is about transactions. More transactions means more financial services and makes, I think, more efficiency in the economy and allows for sort of greater human welfare. Feel free at this point to now pick any, to the extent you can or want to, you can include any case studies of the companies you've invested in if you think they're particularly 
instructive. I know we've invested in at least one company together, maybe more. Are there any sort of case studies, ideas? You don't even have to name the companies if you don't want, but as sort of as able to walk through something specific that you think is an opportunity or something that somebody's developing as a wonderful product or service. Yeah, which is the one company we're in together before I do this? You have to guess. Stacking. Oh, Stacking? Great. That makes sense to me. I love that business. So I'll tell a story about a company of ours that I love talking about for a variety of reasons. The company's called Landed. And what Landed does is helps local school teachers buy their first home. So you can understand why I feel good talking about it. It helps local public school teachers buy their first home in the more expensive locations. So in Palo Alto, California, in Manhattan Beach, California, in Miami, wherever it is where real estate is expensive, and you're a public school teacher, Landed helps you buy your first home. What does Landed really do? At the end of the day, all they do is serve as an equity co-investor in your house. The way the mortgage industry has developed in the United States, every mortgage roughly looks the same. It's actually an incredibly simple capital structure for a given house. You're going to own 20% of the total capital. That's 100% of the equity. And then you're going to borrow probably 80% loan to value. That's your mortgage. That's the 100% cost of your house. In expensive like zip codes, most people who are sort of essential professionals, educators, is a good example of this, probably can afford the debt service cost to buy a single family home, especially today when rates are very low, although that does have a price impact. So over time, it sort of nets itself out. The servicing cost, which is analogous to a rental cost, people who work in that community can generally afford it. But that 20% can be a real problem because not everyone has a parent who's capable of gifting them money or signing for it. A lot of times, especially early in careers, people just haven't been able to save in order to get there. Maybe you have 5%, maybe you have 10% of the cost of the home for a down payment, but you don't have the full 20. Landage shows up and says, all right, Meb, here's how this is going to work. You're going to post 10% of the cost of your house. We're going to post another 10, and I'm simplifying the way this works. And then we'll go to the bank and we'll get to that 80% that's the mortgage and you'll end up in the house. And here's what happens. Over time, as your home appreciates in value, we at Landed will take some of that equity appreciation because we paid half the equity. We won't actually take half the appreciation. We'll take less because we have to find a way to make this work. So it's actually net good for you. And we don't really worry too much about it declining over time because while on a given house, property values might actually decline over time, if Landed can build a diversified enough portfolio in areas that have expensive land costs, which is a proxy for basically net migration into that area, over time values for the Landed equity slugs that they're buying. And so there's two things I think that are happening here at Landed that are really interesting. One is that this is a financial product that does great in the world. So that's not just a use case, like it's legit. You're focusing on teachers. The business is 100% focused on teachers on day one. Over time, you could imagine this expanding to all kinds of categories, municipal employees, police and fire, nurses turn out to be a really large category. There's a lot of nurses and they're not paid what they should be. There's a lot of different things that you could imagine. And Landed actually, in theory, could run this program on behalf of companies. So like farm workers is another category where you could imagine it. And, and to some extent, by the way, what Landed does, universities have done this for their faculty for decades. Princeton and Stanford and Harvard all do this, where you're a Stanford tenured faculty 
they actually do it on the mortgage side. They'll lend to you at a discount over time. And they actually forgive some of that loan over time to help you buy your property because around Stanford, it's expensive. In Princeton, New Jersey, it's fairly expensive. Those big and sophisticated university endowments have done this kind of thing. And there's a couple of companies that do it. Landed isn't the only one, but Landed is very focused on the educators as the way of doing it because an educator turns out to be a really good borrower. It's a very stable job. It's pretty hard actually to get fired as a teacher. They tend to like their job. They're attached to the community. So they're going to be there. They're going to pay their mortgage. They're generally responsible sorts of people. It's actually a great borrower. It's just, how do you get the down payment? So the first thing that happens here is in the same vein, I was talking about sort of extending credit in lots and lots of places to people who might otherwise not have access to it. This is a form of credit because the equity, the instrument that landed technically buys, it looks more like a piece of mezzanine debt than it does true equity, the way the kind of payoff profile works. But the second thing is precisely that. If you think about single family owner occupied residential in the United States, it's a massive asset class. It's in fact, one of the very largest asset classes. And it has this radically simple cap structure. Everybody's house is just a single tier of common equity and a single tier of senior secured debt. You couldn't possibly imagine that little financial sophistication in an asset class of this size. Companies that are much smaller than many people's home values have much more complex cap structures than this relatively simple way of approaching it. Now, there's a tremendous degree of sophistication on the debt itself packaged up into mortgage bonds where there's a very elaborate degree of sophistication. But the equity side of home ownership is almost totally unsophisticated. And so part of what I think is really interesting about Landed is that they're taking what is otherwise a very, very simple capital structure and just beginning this journey of complexifying it, of securitizing it, of hypothecating it. And what we see, not just in Landed, but in many, many fintech, prop tech startups that are getting formed now, is a much greater degree of liquidity and of sophistication on the equity side of single family residential. And the narrative I sometimes tell is like, this is one that'll really, I think, raise that same question you asked, is this net good for people or not? If we fast forward five years, I have high conviction, Meb, you'll be able to be in your house one night, you drink a bottle of wine, you go to some website and you discover that your house is trading for 30% higher than what you think it's worth. You click a few buttons and bang, you've sold 15% of your home equity to somebody on the other side of that trade. It could be an investor, it could be another individual, who knows. And you're going to wake up in the morning and sort of turn to your wife and say, hey, honey, guess what I did last night? I made this great trade. I sold 15% of our house. And maybe you were a little drunk when you did it. And your wife's going to be like, what on earth are you thinking? And you sort of go, is this actually a good thing for society if people can do this? Maybe we want to put a speed bump around that. Maybe we want to put a guardrail around it. There's no principled reason from a technology perspective, selling and trading the equity in your home should really be that much more difficult than selling an equity to trading in Microsoft stock. Well, I really like this idea, this concept of for most people around the country, their house is their largest piece of their net worth, and it's not even close. And tying back to the very beginning of our conversation about diversification, even at its core about living a life that is not exposed to just one single asset, it seems obvious that you wouldn't necessarily want to have 100%, even if you could afford it. I like that general concept. What is sort of the customer acquisition? Is it direct to consumer? Or is it mostly partnered through corporates and organizations like all the various teachers unions? 
or counties? How do they acquire customers? Partnering with school districts is a big way for them. Sometimes in the beginning of the business, they would actually go partner with almost like PTAs. And in some cases, the balance sheet for this would come from local families. Now there's enough proof points. It's an institutional asset class and they raise funds and so forth from charitable foundations. There's a lot of capital that sort of has like a double bottom line mandate to say, hey, I'm going to give you a real estate asset that's going to put educators in houses. It's not too hard of a sell, although it's still, I think, harder than it should be, but it'll get easier over time. Do you think the traditional lenders, have you seen the evidence that they're adopting this option on their own too as a feature or are they just like, no, (laughs) we're just doing conventional mortgages and that's it? You're saying the teachers themselves? No, like if you went to Bank of America, are any of the incumbents adopting this idea? I think it's still pretty early. This is a highly regulated market, mortgages, and it's still early. There are lots of interesting fintech solutions around home buying now that have reached a degree of scale. Even Opendoor, which is sort of famously this iBuyer, where it just will instantly give you a quote on your house and you can transact fairly quickly is a good example of something that many people have heard of, which started quite small, has gotten quite large, but is still actually quite small in the big picture of home transacting. And there are now a wide range of, call it second and third derivatives on the open door model, where there are now fintech startups where not only can you sell your home to something like an open door very quickly, but you can sell your home to the same firm that will bring an agent to help you find your next home And we'll help you secure that mortgage. We'll let you bid on that next home as if you're a cash-only buyer because they'll essentially guarantee you'll get your mortgage. They'll navigate the rent back of the house you just sold to them in that time period. It's an end-to-end experience for you as a homeowner selling one house to buy another all with the same company. And there's a cost for you to do that. But you can see that that journey is sort of better delivered actually through one partner than forcing you as a homeowner to figure this out on your own. And there are going to be lots of innovations around this, whether it's schemes where you can like rent to own your house. I think there are going to be, there already are to some extent, companies that will try to monetize portions of your home. So for instance, let's say you buy a house in Los Angeles, for instance, any garage can basically legally be turned into an apartment. They call it an ADU, an additional dwelling unit. So there's a company I stumbled across the other day, they will do that for you and essentially own part of the economics of the apartment attached to your house. Like, so your former garage, you don't totally own it. You do, but you don't because they have an economic interest in it. That's like not a bad trade for a lot of people. Plus they could clean out all their crap in the garage and get rid of it and probably sell it too. Yeah, that's right. Live lighter. It's a dual recycling, reduced consumption, potential revenue generator. So we haven't seen B of A offer, hey, not only will we lend you on the mortgage, we'll also like buy part of your house. They probably should be in that business. But one of the challenges of it is you get some adverse selection. Most of the people who are going to go that route are actually your least attractive borrowers. There's something sort of unique about educators and to some extent, essential workers where They're actually really good borrowers holding stable jobs that are attached to that community that you really want to lend to them. But if you run like a radio ad that says, hey, you can buy a bigger house than you otherwise would have been able to, and I'll post half the equity for it, you're not going to get the borrowers you want. And so part of what we like about Landed too, when 
relative to the peer group anyway of startups is that I think they've solved some of these adverse selection issues. But it's just an example. I think they're all going to be successful businesses because mortgage and home ownership is such a large industry. And we've structurally stacked the deck through taxes where people should own their own house. It's important in the way we've built the economic system in this country. There's going to continue to be a relentless demand to own a home, and there are going to be more and more ways of achieving that goal that look slightly more exotic. Yeah. The home ownership whole stack, you're seeing so many cool companies in that space. What else? You got any other case studies, any ideas that you're particularly hot about? Are there any portfolio companies that have been surprise rocket ships? Take the open-ended question any way you want. Anything you're particularly excited about? One of our most recent investments that we did, which is actually the so far the largest investment we've ever made, is in a consumer stockbroking company called M1, which I think the world of I love the experience of M1. I think actually for many folks who are sort of your audience, it's probably a pretty perfect kind of app. M1, I think, takes some of the aspects of what, say, a Robinhood does and some of the aspects of what, say, a Wealthfront or Betterment do, kind of blend them together into a brokerage account for self-directed long-term investors who want to build portfolios for themselves that they believe can outperform. M1 makes that incredibly easy to do with zero commissions, automatic rebalancing, heavily through ETFs, but also through single stocks, if that's how you want to do it, in a really beautiful application. And they're adding to it over time, just ongoing automation tools for individuals who want to take charge of their own finances and financial services. And I think there's something really powerful about that. One of the ways we think about it is that we are investors in a whole bunch of consumer-facing fintech companies, many of which offer so-called challenger bank solutions to consumers, some of whom are less affluent, some of whom are more affluent. For an M1 customer, if you have a big brokerage account, whatever big means, I'm not going to put a number on it, but you're sort of actually investing an account at some scale. M1 unlocks for you a whole bunch of use cases that I think over time will become really compelling reasons to switch. So one of the examples I love, so a little bit to homeownership, which one of the management team folks at M1 told us about that they did themselves. Every year, if you're a homeowner, you have to pay your taxes. It's a big check, actually, to write your property tax bill when the bill comes due. And most people don't necessarily have that cash like lying around to write their check. Sometimes they save up in order to pay that bill. Sometimes they borrow to pay that bill. M1, in theory, on an automated basis, would let you pay your homeowner's taxes at the beginning of the year when it's required to pay it by borrowing against your stock holdings because they can essentially make you a margin-type loan. It's not actually a margin loan because you don't use it to go buy more stock. It's just a secured loan against the value of your stuff, which is the kind of thing that the big banks would do for their ultra-high net worth clients like all day long, but is actually sort of annoying to do on like E-Trade. And one makes this really easy. And then they can set an automated repayment schedule of that loan over the course of the year. They could do it out of the dividend stream and earning streams that your stock portfolio is going to generate. They could do it out of a bank account that you would attach to M1. And they actually now have their own debit account that you can do and partner with it. And this is actually a more efficient way for you as an investor to stay invested all the time. Rather than having to sell some relatively substantial chunk of your portfolio on a random day to have to go pay this tax bill, 
it may not actually be the right time to be underinvested and to then have to sort of buy back in over some period of time. It's better to stay invested through the whole thing, borrow against it at fairly low yield because the loan is actually secured by your portfolio. And to do this in an automated fashion is, I think, the kind of interesting innovation that over time M1 will continue to roll out. And we'll see this not just with M1 and lots of sorts of businesses, the idea of automated financial services. People are calling it self-driving wallets. I think Wealthfront's actually trademarked that term, although lots of people talk about it. I just prefer to talk about automation in finance, whatever that looks like. I think that's going to be a very big thematic. And M1 is interesting to us because it takes a lot of the best features in the consumer wealth management space, consumer broking space, and stitches them together with automation. That creates some real power for you as a user, which I think is really cool. We definitely have some investors that have tracked some of our portfolios and allocations on M1 over the years. Really nice user interface, beautiful. That's one of the biggest things with all the recent generation of the apps is just how simple they work. I joke half-heartedly that I once transferred money from Vanguard or to Vanguard, I can't even remember which, and it was so complicated that it almost made me think that they did it on purpose. They're like, this is a check against you doing things too active because it took like three months. And I joke that that was some of the most alpha I've ever generated in my life was because they somehow took me three months during a during a volatile period in markets. But yeah, M1's great. We could sit here and talk about all 80-ish of your other companies, and I would like to. I'd love to do it. We should do this weekly. We started asking a new question on the podcast, which I'm going to tweak a little bit for you, but you can kind of choose which way you want to answer it, which is simply what's your best idea right now? And so the concept being, if it's an investor, they could be like, I want to invest in emerging market value for the next 10 years. I think risk parity is great allocation. You can take this in what is a unfunded idea no one has solved yet that you really like. You could take it as a current idea you just love and it's the bee's knees or your own interpretation. You want an investment idea, right? Not like a movie pitch. Well, we're LA guys, so I'm listening. That's like when you put under the umbrella of worst ideas on the planet, the ones we see is it's restaurants and movies. I could imagine a sitcom about a financial podcaster. I actually invested in a fund that invests, co-invests with podcast hosts. That's one of my favorite ideas. Kind of what you're talking about with the housing, it takes emerging podcast hosts that are seeing traction gives them access to a bunch of resources, but also takes a little bit of the equity off the table. Anyway, I like that idea. We'll have to check in and see how those guys are doing. I try to get them on the podcast. No, that would be a terrible sitcom. But anything come to mind? You got any good ideas? Are there any burning ideas in the back of your head that you're like, man, I just wish someone would fund this. I can't find anyone to do it. Yeah, we have lots. I mean, we actually keep a list of ideas that we want to incubate. And those ideas I'm not going to dig into here because I think one day we might actually do some of these things. Do you do any house? Does Clock Tower do any sort of labs? We haven't so far. We talked about this last time we were together. This was one of our things we went on for hours. I said, I'll fund it with you. I know. It's been something we've literally been kicking this around for years. You have to be focused and we're already... I think the problem was that your ideas and my ideas, they were zero Venn diagram overlap. So I said, we're going to have to split the office into two. We'll get the funding and it would just smash them together. All right. So any you can talk about? 
I guess I'll give maybe a couple really big picture ideas that maybe I can stitch together into something. So I think one idea that we've talked a lot about is, and I mentioned this a little bit about how we think about the world at Clockdown Group, is that fundamentally, I think human beings, we all get richer, we get wealthier is really what it comes down to over very, very long periods of time, like on a historical time scale. What is it that causes us to get wealthier? It's not like there's more atoms in the world, and yet somehow things are improving. We're all getting wealthier over time. And essentially, it comes down to we are somehow able to add more and more value to the things we already have. My professor at Stanford, Paul Romer, would sort of talk about it as like recipes. We just get better and better recipes for combining things in the world to make things that are more useful to us over time. And I think this idea of recipes is powerful. It's not just physical recipes, like we can extract more energy from a gallon of oil today than we could have a million years ago. And two by two inch semiconductor today does way more than a two by two inch semiconductor did 30 years ago, whatever it is. It's also in more abstract intellectual things that techniques we develop, algorithms we develop, ideas we might have about how to do things in markets are all more valuable than they used to be. And one of the really sort of big ways that human beings have created wealth in the world is essentially securitization. We take risks, we figure out how to bind them together in some contractual form and then trade those risks and essentially reallocate them in ways that create net surplus. This is functionally what insurance does from a first principles economics point of view. It take a bunch of risks, pool them together. It reduces anybody's individual exposure to it. There's an economic surplus attached to that. So one of the big megatrends we think about is securitization of risk, creation of new assets over time, and in particular, a convergence of what today we would call private markets and public markets into something that looks more like one broad-based thing. As a practical matter, when we look at the world and you go, are there areas of reality that have not been securitized as yet and can unlock a lot of value? I think human capital is this massively unsecuritized asset. There's not a good way really to extract the value of human capital. Today, what we do is we pay people for their labor by and large. That is actually not that efficient for a whole bunch of different reasons. Partially the incentives are bad, Partially, it's tied to some very narrow time window. The value of MEB's labor 10 years from now, it's unknown. We don't know what it's going to be worth. We don't know what your contribution to sort of the economy, to society, et cetera, in the year 2030 is going to be. But we could put some boundaries around it. We could try to value that thing. We don't know what Apple's earnings are going to be in 2030 either, but we certainly try to put valuation to that. And the question is, if we could put some theoretical value to like MEB's earnings in 2030, you ought to be able to monetize it in some way, shape, or form and do something with it today to either invest, to buy a yacht. I don't know what you want to do with the present value of your 2030 earnings, but maybe you should be able to do that. And there's a lot of interesting ideas around this concept of like the value of human capital being securitized. So a big one is this idea of income sharing agreements, where a prominent company called Lambda School, we're not investors in it. They teach you how to be a computer engineer. It's kind of like a trade school in some ways, but the way you pay them back, it's not fixed. It's essentially variable, and it's a function of what you're going to earn. And it's set up in a way that's not punitive and horrible for you. It's actually very much configured to be to your advantage, but Lambda School has a nice business around it. I love, love, love the concept of ISAs across the board. For some unknown reason, and it may be 
the just general narrative and marketing description of them. For some reason, it causes people to lose their minds, like some of the critics. There's like, you're incentivizing people to be slaves, and they just go crazy on Twitter. And I said, look, all it needs is a little better marketing angle, dipping into policy. Andrew Yang talks a lot about universal basic income and my slant. I said, look, consider an idea instead of phrasing it like that, because it seems like a handout. It's like a welfare check. I said, why not consider it something like a freedom dividend or something that say, look, you're actually just getting a very small portion of the business of the country and have it be paid out as a ownership in essentially stocks. But my whole point goes back to the old like death insurance, life insurance. ISAs to me seem such a reasonable and not that complicated wonderful thing for most young people to consider. And they've been around for forever. It's so weird that people react so strongly in a negative. They feel squishy because like, I think it's really a downside skew thing. If I write you and ISA, I essentially lend you money. If I don't do that well, nobody feels bad about it. But let's say I make out like a bandit and you become a billionaire. That's not even not a good example. I just do really well and you don't do really well. That seems to set people off. That's the part that feels squishy. But they cap it, I think, as well. There's like a max ceiling that you hit. Anyway, anyway. The laws around it are unclear. But I think the broad idea, whether it's an ISO or some other structure that doesn't exist yet, who knows what it is, this idea of securitizing human capital, I think is a really important idea and crucially unlocks an asset class that would actually be bigger than any asset class that exists in the world today. The value of human capital, in theory, should be bigger than the value of all the physical capital in the world and all the securitized capital that exists so far. So you can imagine more than a doubling in the size of financial markets if we got enough securitization of human capital in a way that made sense. So I think that's one really important idea that hasn't yet been explored fully enough and that we're interested in exploring. An idea that's less about fintech, but I'm going to connect it to the ICE idea, is something that my partner, Marco Papich, has been talking about for a little while, which is that if you were to make a decade forecast about relative returns between the United States and emerging markets, his view is that emerging markets are likely to outperform over the next decade for a variety of reasons, including some currency consequences of this. I think in particular, the human capital in emerging markets is almost certainly undersecuritized and would be an incredible value opportunity. And as powerful as it would be for an American to be able to say, take instead of some student loan that's a fixed rate and potentially very punitive, a much more nimble sort of income share agreement sort of idea. Imagine if you could do income shares in emerging countries and deliver people who otherwise really don't have access to high quality credit at attractive rates, capital that they can invest in themselves, that they could invest in businesses, that they could do all kinds of things with, where they themselves can look at much, much higher sort of return on investment use cases than Ben or Meb could. And I think there is some unbelievably large opportunity here that you see in businesses or in nonprofits that are like micro lending enterprise. Like I've been a lender on Kiva since I was in business school where my friend Jessica Jackley helped set up Kiva and I first learned about it. It's such a wonderful idea. And Kiva's done as a nonprofit rather than for-profit as a micro lender, but there are plenty of for-profit micro lenders. And I think that's really just the tip of the iceberg, that there's so much capital that gets concentrated in like Tesla, that maybe it would be better for the world if that capital ended up in 
human capital rather than in Tesla stock down the line. And instead of saying, hey, the thing that everyone wants to talk about is the $2 trillion value of Apple. It's like, well, what about the value of like all these people in these emerging nations? Let's figure out a way to securitize that, to monetize that, make that the hot stock in the world, add that to everyone's portfolio. Like if every endowment in the West said, we're just going to take 1% of our portfolio and put it into some asset class denominated by like human capital in frontier nations as a for-profit thing, not a donation, some sort of for-profit thing. Maybe it ends up just being plain vanilla student loans, but I think we could do it in a way that was responsible and that was something like an ISA. What a difference that would make in the world. I'd love to see that happen. Good. When you guys send Ben your pitches, CC me, please, because I'm very interested. I love those ideas. And I've invested in a couple companies that have been doing the ISAs But agree, it hasn't seemed like other than Lambda School, there hasn't been quite the exact messaging or fit to where it really feels like it's going to. But given what's going on in the education space this year, there seems like there's going to be a lot of disruption and turnover and innovation pretty soon. Our classic question so that you can apply this personally, you can apply it across your company or both. What's been your most memorable investment? Could be good. It could be bad. It could be in between. Anything come to mind? In some ways, the most memorable investment is the thing that I've... Stockpiling mass in March when you got back from Miami, selling them on eBay. <laughs> well, I mean, I, right. Yeah. I'll tell this brief story. I was very fortunate to be a seed investor in an apparel business called Bonobos. And Bonobos was founded by two close friends of mine, Andy Dunn and Brian Spaley. And the first Bonobos office was my apartment in New York City. So we all graduated from business school in 2007. Andy Dunn moved into my apartment with a couple thousand pairs of pants. And I would get up in the morning, go downstairs to get on the bus to go to Westport, Connecticut. And coming up the stairs would be the first employees of Bonobos. I'd get home at night. They'd be pickpacking and shipping boxes of pants in my kitchen. I'd wake up on a Saturday morning and find strangers trying on pants in my living room. So it was sort of an interesting experience to be around an e-commerce company very, very early. As I look back on that time, I think one of the really cool things about it was seeing the forefront, like the earliest beginnings of this wave of e-commerce direct-to-consumer startups. Bonobos was really one of the first ones of those. And I was a very small investor. They were friends of mine. I sort of saw what it was like to operate a startup literally in my apartment. But really, It was just incredible to see the beginning of how powerful direct distribution was going to become of consumer businesses online. And in some ways, I wish I'd paid more attention to it because I probably could have started investing like crazy in all those startups, which to their credit, the guys who actually built that company were smart enough to do and I was not. But I think there's something really fun about that kind of investment. Like I was just kind of backing friends. I didn't know anything about what they were really doing. But watching that blossom was just really satisfying. And eventually there's something cool about like walking into a Nordstrom department store and seeing the pants for sale or just wandering around the world for a while and seeing people wearing the clothing was like, hey, that's kind of cool. But really it was this idea of we're going to distribute directly to consumers something that was built purposefully for the web. And now you see that over and over and over again in new consumer categories. It's trained me to sort of think 
well, what is something that I'm seeing now that doesn't feel like that big of an innovation? Because to be honest, at the time, it really didn't feel like that big of an innovation to me. And yet it really was. It was a fundamentally new business model in some ways, or at least the perfection of a business model that had been talked about since the beginning of the internet. And so whether that's in fintech or just in investing broadly, I think there's a lot of power if you can identify something and constantly ask yourself, hey, this looks different. Is it actually the beginning of a big change, a big inflection or not? Because markets are pretty good at picking up on trends, but they're not very good at catching inflection points. It takes markets a while. And if you can teach yourself to identify an inflection point, you can do extraordinarily well. And I don't know that I've figured out how to do it, but it's at least something I spend time thinking about. I definitely spent a day scrambling for clothes once in New York City, wandered into a bonobo's, tried to buy some clothes, and they're like, sorry, got to ship them to your house. I said, what do you mean? I said, can I dry them on here? So that's no good. I need them today. But you touch on something that I think is just this massive sort of dislocation on investing in a lot of startup private companies, obviously, the optimism, the excitement, the energy changing the world versus the constant negative news flow bombardment in public markets. It's just every day. It just feels like it's terrible news all day long. It's a nice barbell to at least have a little balance because I feel like if you're an equity investor in public markets, you spend all your time just getting hit over the head with negatives. But whereas often on the early stage, it's such a optimistic state of the world. It's a little easier to live through the pandemic times. Ben, where do people find you? They want to they wanna find more, send you their terrible ideas, all this good stuff. We're online at clocktowerventures.com. That's probably the best way to do it. And there should be contact information there. I'm on LinkedIn. You can always reach me directly on LinkedIn. We do our best to respond to everything. We obviously get a fair number of inbounds. And so we're not perfect at it, but we'd love to hear from anybody who listened to this. Well, by the time this hits publish, my nuggets, your Celtics will have already advanced to the next round. So congratulations to both those teams. Knock on wood. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ben. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. And we've been talking about doing this for too long. It's great to finally pull it together. It's been a delight to be here and I hope we can do it again. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. My current favorite is Breaker. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.